I would like to spend the next two or three weeks in the fifth chapter of 2 Kings. There's a personality study that I would like to do, and I really believe that as we mine this story of Naaman, that there is going to be a significant amount of truth that each of us can apply to our life as we look at this incredible account. And, and I'd like to begin today by reading kind of half the story, even though I know we're not gonna get through it today, but I'd like to read in chapter five of 2 Kings, verses one through 14. And so if you have your Bibles, I'm gonna ask if you have an actual book with you, keep them open. If it's your uh, device, you can keep that because we're gonna be referring to several different scriptures through this. Lessons from Naaman. And today, if there was a title for this, it would be how, how we become believers. How we become believers. Now, Naaman was commander of the army of the king of Aram. He was a great man in the sight of his master and highly regarded because through him, the Lord had given victory to Aram. He was a valiant soldier, but he had leprosy. Now bands of raiders from Aram had gone out and had taken captive a young girl from Israel and she served Naaman's wife. She said to her mistress, if only my master would see the prophet who is in Samaria, he would cure him of his leprosy. Naaman went to his master and told him what the girl from Israel had said. By all means go, the king of Aram said. I will send a letter to the king of Israel. So Naaman left, taking with him 10 talents of silver, 6,000 shekels of gold, and 10 sets of clothing. The letter that he took to the king of Israel read, with this letter I am sending my servant Naaman to you so that you may cure him of his leprosy. As soon as the king of Israel read the letter, he tore his robes and said, am I God? Can I kill and bring back to life? Why does this fellow send someone to me to be cured of his leprosy? See how he is trying to pick a quarrel with me. When Elisha, the man of God, heard that the king of Israel had torn his robes, he sent him this message. Why have you torn your robes? Have the man come to me, and he will know that there is a prophet in Israel. So Naaman went with his horses and chariots and stopped at the door of Elisha's house. Elisha sent a message to him, go wash yourself seven times in the Jordan and your flesh will be restored and you will be cleansed. But Naaman went away angry and said, I thought that he would surely come out to me and stand and call on the name of the Lord, his God, wave his hand over the spot, cure me of my leprosy. Are not Abana and far par the rivers of Damascus better than the waters of Israel? Couldn't I wash in them and be cleansed? And so he turned and he went off in a rage. Naaman's servants went to him and said, my father, if the prophet had told you to do some great thing, would you not have done it? How much more then when he tells you, wash and be cleansed? So, he went down and he dipped himself in the Jordan seven times as the man of God had told him and his flesh was restored and he became clean like that of a young boy. Heavenly Father, we come to you with a simple prayer today. Make the book live to us. Show us you yourself within the word. 
show me myself within the word and show me my savior and make the book live in Jesus name. Welcome to February. Now comes that time where you've had a whole month of realizing that you're already 31 days behind in the goals that you set on January the 1st. There comes this moment of time as we reach this stage where we begin to, to recognize, okay, I have to recalibrate some things and, and redetermine who I am and what I'm gonna accomplish. And, and as I was thinking about that, I want for you that are, that are here today and for those of you that are joining us online that wonder what is Grace Assembly all about? It's the idea that the gospel, the essential message of Jesus Christ can change anyone and anything. That's what we are all about. There probably is no better picture of that actually taking place than this very unique passage of scripture that we find in the Old Testament, which we're gonna look at for the next few weeks. In fact, just to give you an understanding of the history of this so that you can begin to, to mine some of the depths of this, we are finding here that a Syrian general an Aramean general, which is also Syria, goes to the God of another country, goes to the God of Israel to get help. To understand this, you need to know that Syria and Israel hated each other. They were at war with each other and the intense seething relationship that they had with each other makes this entire scenario highly unlikely. Interesting enough, Currently, as we read this particular passage, Syria is winning the battles, defeating the Israelites. We read that in the scripture that this commander was leading and he was being, uh, seeing the clashes that they were involved in, he was winning those. That a Syrian high official would go to Israel to get any kind of help is highly unlikely, but that is exactly what happens in scripture. Naaman who is sophisticated, who is powerful, who is influential, who is Syrian, goes to Israel to find the God of Israel to get some help. And frankly, when we look at it through the eyes of history, this is shocking to us. It would be as shocking as if you heard that a world famous politician was regularly sneaking into the back row of the overflows every Sunday to hear what was going on here in Grace Assembly. We would hear something like that and we'd say, what, are, are you kidding me? Interesting enough, when Cindy and I moved to Syracuse 27 years ago, we were told that the area of Syracuse was predominantly influenced by the sophistication of the university and the medical centers. That as a result of that influence, that people in upstate New York and primarily around Syracuse were a rather sophisticated group of people that were really not interested in God at all. And so, in other words, Syracuse was filled with Naamans. I've discovered that that may superficially be true. However, there is a lot of clandestine seeking of God going on. In fact, there are those of you that are watching online today that didn't want to come today, but you just really wanted to see what was going on, and we caught you <laughs> seeking God. What brings Naaman, an accomplished person? 
What brings an incredibly unlikely person to seek the God of the Bible? That's what we're going to look at. I had three points I was going to share with you today. Why we seek, how people find, and the power of grace, but we're only going to get to one point. So you're going to have to come back for the rest of it. Why people seek. Why do people turn into seekers? And I understand that even that word can, can turn people off, but I, I want to use it in, the, in the, the context of why people have an interest in God. I believe that there are two factors, and I'd like you to jot these down. Number one, you discover that self-sufficiency is an illusion. You discover that self-sufficiency is an illusion. I'd like to start right at the first verse of this chapter when it says, Now Naaman was the commander of the army of the king of Aram. He was a great man in the sight of his master, highly regarded because through him the Lord had given victory to Aram. He was a valiant soldier, but he had leprosy. It's interesting because in Hebrew, this entire verse is one sentence, and it's almost like a literary art as it, it talks about that he was... He was this wonderful man, he was connected to the king. He knew the king personally. Everybody that was anybody in the land knew who he was. Highly regarded, victorious in battle, valiant soldier. He was loved and admired by everybody. His accomplishments were impressive. Valiant, which means that he had great prowess. He was competent in the things that he did. Very athletic, very successful, highly awarded, unbelievably wealthy. But... He had leprosy. And the first thing that we see is that self-sufficiency is an illusion. It does not matter what kind of a designer life that you have created for yourself. It does not matter what kind of accomplishments that you may have achieved in life or how well you are put together or how much everybody else loves and admire you. Something is going to happen that will ruin it. Something will happen. In this particular case, that something may have been from the outside. And, and, and some of you have experienced this, that in the middle of everything going great in your life, perhaps there was somebody that you deeply loved and depended upon that died. And suddenly your world is shaken and you're in the middle of bereavement. It may be that in your designer life that you have put together, everything is going great. And then you go to the doctor and the doctor tells you that you have some sort of a terrible illness. Perhaps for some of you, it's been that in my designer life, I have worked so hard to develop a relationship with an individual that I expect that this relationship is going to bring me all of this joy and happiness. And finally, I will be somebody only to experience betrayal or discover that real life relationships between two flawed people rarely turn out with all the joy that you thought it might. It might be that in your designer life, you have worked so hard for something only to see a financial disaster come about and create absolute rubble of everything that you had built. You see, no amount of wealth and no amount of power can make you impervious to those things. Not only can they happen, it is only a matter of time and they will happen to you. And when they do, the most seemingly self-sufficient person will finally come to the place where they realize I am out of my depth and I do not know what to do. And we look at that and say, well, why? Because when you think that you are in control of your life, when you think I've got this down, 
When you think, I've got a handle on all this, something will come along and will ruin it. Something will always spoil it. And when that happens, you will come to the realization that it's not just now that my life is out of control. It will come to the realization that my life was never in my control. That I've always been fragile. That my life is subject to all sorts of forces around me. And the illusion of self-sufficiency gets destroyed. Sometimes the leprosy is not something from the outside, but sometimes it's on the inside. There are forms of these terrible wasting diseases that are not from the outside, but are actually a part of the DNA and our genetic code that we are made up with. And we recognize that leprosy can represent this flaw that is found within us, that something is wrong on the inside. For some of you, you have come to discover that you are deeply anxious people. That you live in a place of constant fear of all of the what-ifs around you. And you've recognized that peace seems to be fleeting as a result of that. Or maybe you are a person that is great at nurturing grievances through the years. And you still do. You find yourself with this seething resentment about everything that happens to you. And you live your life going from being offended about one thing to being offended about another. Constantly holding these things inside of you. Maybe it would be that what is inside of you is that you're a very stubborn person. Very proud. You're wise in your own eyes and you do not take advice. Or maybe you're a person that had hidden addictions or has hidden addictions. Things that you don't want anybody to know or anybody to see. And you've been harboring these things. And there is this feeling deep down inside that you kind of sort of know about. But you, you really don't know how deep it is in you. And you live in denial. But you have this fear that someday it's going to spring up and ruin the illusion of your self-sufficiency. The Greeks had a whole genre of entertainment called tragedy. Some of you may be familiar with that. And the Bible agrees. Life is tragic. Why? Because it does not matter what kind of designer life you have put together or think you are putting together. Something will ruin it. And when it happens, you will say to yourself, controlling my own life is an illusion. This is why most people begin to seek God. They are motivated to do so because something went wrong. This great man, all these accomplishments, but that last few words, but he had leprosy. Why does something have to go wrong? Why does there have to be trouble? I believe that sometimes it's the only thing that wakes us up out of our metaphysical dream of self-sufficiency, out of the illusion that we can live our lives on our own terms, out of the illusion that we have control of everything and that we can face life on our own. We don't have that kind of control. And so it is the first factor that causes people to begin to seek causes them to begin to look. Now, it's only the first factor because every one of us knows people that are going through things within their life where their life is falling apart. They've got problems. They go through the bereavement or financial issues, sickness, relational betrayal, and they don't turn to God. So it's the first factor that self-sufficiency is an illusion. But there's a second factor 
that helps us as we begin to seek God. And that is understanding this. The world cannot help you. The world cannot help you. No spiritual progress is possible until you see that the world cannot help you. Here's the way we look at this. I want you to notice what Naaman had when he was in Syria. He had at least three things. First of all, he had connections to the top people. I don't know about you, but it is kind of nice to know that we have friends that may be in high places that can help us from time to time bypass the regular red tape that we have to go through and just go to somebody on the top. We, we all enjoy that. And we recognize quickly that that's who Naaman had. He had connections to the top people. The king and every other high-ranking official would respond to his invitation to meet with them. Secondly, as we look at his designer life, he had money. He had a lot of money. In fact, I found it really fascinating as I was studying this last couple of weeks as to how much money is represented in today's current terms that was talked about here. And it was fascinating because the commentators couldn't agree, but every one of them said the same thing. It was a lot. He was unbelievably wealthy. So he came with his connections and he came with his money. It also said that he had power and expertise. He was a valiant man, highly, highly regarded. He had prowess, which indicates that he was competent in lots of different things. He was skilled and competent in many areas. So he had connections, he had a lot of money, he had resources, he had power, he had expertise, but none of this had helped him in Syria. He still has a wasting disease. Something had caused him to have to stop and recognize that he was at the end of his rope and that none of his connections, money, or power had helped him. And you have to know that he had tried every single avenue available to him before he would go and recognize that there was a God in a country that was an enemy of his that he might want to try out. And then he hears, there's help, but it's in the enemy camp. There's help, but it's in Israel. And so what does he do? This is fascinating. He goes from one king to another king. In fact, look at what he takes with him to the king of Israel. It tells us in verse five that he gets a letter from the king of Aram to take to the king of Israel. And it said, so Naaman left, taking with him 10 talents of silver, 6,000 shekels of gold and 10 sets of clothing. So Naaman goes to Israel with the same things that hadn't worked in Syria. Maybe a change of location will make this better. He goes with his connections, the letter directly to the king. He goes with his money and he has to have chariots to carry it all. And he actually went with his prowess as we begin to find out a little bit later because he thought he was going to have to do some great thing. It tells us in verse 13 that uh, it says, my father, if the prophet had told you to do some great thing, would you not have done it? So he was expecting this isn't going to be cheap. This isn't going to be free. I'm going to have to do something for this. So he was prepared like Lancelot. Maybe he's going to have to joust. Maybe he was going to be given something. That he's going to have to do some great thing so that everybody would know that he had secured this blessing or this cure. And so he came with all of the things that the world can give you and all of the things that had not worked for him in Syria, the connections, the money, the power to earn his cure. But what he has to learn and what the Bible narrative shows us and what you and I have to learn is that he cannot even begin to make progress until he sees that the world does not have what he needs. And so the first way that he gets to know this 
is when the letter shows up with him at the king of Israel's door. And we, we see in verse 7, as soon as the king of Israel read the letter, so a letter from the king of Aram to the king of Israel, king to king, his response was he tore his robes and he said, am I God? Can I kill and bring back to life? Why does this fellow send someone to me to be cured of his leprosy? See how he was trying to pick a quarrel with me. In other words, again, you understand the tension that's going on between these two kings. And the king of Israel looks at this and said, it's bad enough that we're getting defeated in war. Now he's asking me to do something I do not have the capability of doing. So his concerns are, number one, that this is going to cause an international incident. The second concern, and this is a much greater issue for the king of Israel, is that he knows Naaman does not understand how the God of Israel works. He doesn't understand him at all. Now, Throughout this study, I do not want to be too hard on Naaman because Naaman is a phenomenal man. He is a great man. And we're going to see that as we, as we go through this narrative as it moves along. But like everybody else in the world, Naaman had an understanding that he thought that Israel's God and Israel's religion functioned just like every other nation. Because in every other nation of the world, the God or the religion of that nation was an extension of the culture so that their God and religion was culturally relevant more than personal. It was whatever the belief was. There were cities, there were regions that had regional gods, all of them expressions of their culture. And so in that case, all of the priests and all of the prophets in all of the temples that would surround that religion was employed by the king and was there to support the king. So that was their way in their religions of bringing about unity in a nation and basically social control of people because of the religion of the nation. So understanding then in verse three, it says, if only my master would see the prophet who is in Samaria, he could cure him of his leprosy. So then what does the king do? He goes to the top. He's not going to the prophet first. He goes to the king first. And the reason is because if you have this belief that the God is under the control of the king and the prophets are under the control of the king, then you go to the king so that the king can tell God what to do. And that doesn't work here. And so he tears his robes. He expected that any prophet in Israel would have to be employed by the king. Naaman is not used to having to go through channels. He's used to going right to the top. And so Naaman said, I'm going to the king because the king is the employer of the prophet. The prophet, the employer of God. And in every other nation of the world, their God is a deification of that nation and its cultures and its values. Their God would have been a way of supporting the kingdom, the government, the king. And that's why in every other place in the world, when Naaman comes, he would understand that you could go to the king and buy your blessing from God by going to the king. And he knew, I am not an unusual person that comes to this, or I'm not a usual person, I'm rather unusual. I am the most talented, I'm the most resourced, I'm the most famous, I'm the most connected, I'm the most moral, the most devout, the most loyal, the strongest, the most able. And I am one of those kind of people that can get a blessing from this God. And so Naaman is expecting 
that Israel's God was just like the God of every other nation in the world. But he quickly learned that is not true. And when the king of Israel read the letter, he tore his robes and he said, am I God? I've just been presented a letter asking me to do something I can't do. What he was saying to Naaman is this, you have come to the one place in the whole world where the prophets and the priests don't work for me. You have come to the one place in the whole world where our God is real. God is transcendent. He has his own reality and he is his own being. This God is not a projection of the hearts or of our culture. He is the judge of our hearts and of our culture. This is the one place where the prophets are not on a string. The prophet does not act and say what I, the king, pay him to say. And salvation cannot be bought and healing cannot be earned. And until Naaman learns this, until you and I learn this, that what we really need, the world cannot give him. All the connections, the money, the power, the success, prowess cannot give him what we need. We live in a culture where this belief about the nature of God and religion is alive and well. Today, if you go to most universities, they will teach that religion is essentially a projection of whatever culture you're from. Let me give you some examples of that. If you are an Arab, you're Muslim. If you're an Indian, you're Hindu. If you're from Thailand, you're Buddhist. If you're from America, you may be Christian, you may be Jewish, maybe not. But the idea that religion is an extension of culture is something that is being taught. And even in our universities, the idea of a transcendent God who has his own reality that is objectively true regardless of what else takes place anywhere else in the world is just difficult for people to understand. Therefore, it is no surprise to us that when we go through COVID, when there is a pandemic, when there are problems, when there are issues, what do we do? We create blue ribbon panels. We go to the top of the top. We say, okay, I want the top brains, the top sociologists, the top psychologists, the top physicians, the top technology, the top managers. They are going to be the ones to solve our problems. And the king of Israel says, listen, I do a lot of good things. I, I work hard. I do good things for the people. I help them as much as I can. But I cannot give you what only God can do. I would love it if in the world in which we live, the doctors and the therapists and the political leaders and the professors of the world that can do a lot. I mean, there are some smart people and they can do a lot in the humanities. They can begin to address these issues, but how I would love it if they in unison would stand up together and say, am I God? I can't give you what only God can give you. Years ago, Becky Pippert wrote a book called Hope Has Its Reasons and Worship Team, if you'd please come. And in this book, she recounts a time when she was auditing courses at Harvard in the area of counseling. 
And in one of the courses, the professor was giving a case study of a young man that had grown up and he hated his mother because of the way that he, he had been treated. And the professor was explaining the bitterness and the anger that he had had toward his mother that had had a horrible impact upon his life. And, and at the end of that, it was an ingenious diagnosis. And at one point, Becky raised her hand at the end of that. And she asked the professor, how then do you help him forgive? I mean, what if the man said, thanks therapist for showing me all of this. Now, how do I forgive her so that my anger will not keep twisting my life? And the professor looked at Becky and he said, I think that the therapist would probably say to the man, looking him in the eyes, lots of luck. Lots of luck. Hope it works out for you. Well, the students at this point got a little agitated. And they became upset and they began to ask the professor. One of them said, listen, isn't the point of counseling to relieve suffering? And isn't forgiveness something that can relieve suffering? Therefore, shouldn't it be the job of the therapist to help the man figure out how to forgive? And the professor pushed back and rightly so. And he said, listen, listen to me. He said, look, we are scientists here. Forgiveness is a matter of right and wrong. Forgiveness is a matter of values. You, you forgive somebody first if you believe that what they did is forgivable. If they determine that it's not forgivable, there's no way for you to lead them into any of that. And who are we as scientists to say what is right and what is wrong? When you look at psychology for something like forgiveness, it's impossible, he said. As therapists, we are scientists. We learn how to diagnose but forgiveness leads you into the areas of faith, leads you into the areas of values. And finally, he said this to the whole class, if you're looking for a changed heart, you're looking in the wrong department. If you're looking for a changed heart, you're looking in the wrong department. Thank goodness there was a professor that could at least stand up and say, am I God? Are we God? We can't do what only God can do. You have to go to God for a forgiving heart. You can't just look to the experts because the world cannot give you what you really need the most. No matter how beautiful of a designer life you've created, something will ruin it. No matter how desperately, desperately you try to put things together, the world cannot give you what you really need. This is the first point of what we learned from Naaman.